1: I love that sound. This is a good one. All right everybody. Welcome to Full Scale Outdoors Podcasts. Waterfall Wednesday. No nick this week, so you're stuck with me. I am Dale Luganville. Thanks for joining. So I was uh, perusing. Facebook the other day and uh, for some reason I got an ad well I mean for some reason as and they paid for it but there was an ad by ducks unlimited um, an article which I mean I already followed them so they're really getting a bang for their buck over there from Facebook but <laughs> anyway anyways it was the um, five biggest mistakes in duck hunting and uh, I read it and some of the things I agreed with and some of the things that I didn't, um, this actually would be kind of a fun one to go through with Nick just to see what he thinks versus what I think. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of read through this and then interject and uh, tell you what I agree with and what I don't agree with and why. And uh, yeah, we'll just see if you guys agree. If not, uh, feel free to reach out, send me a message, um, you can go on the... I don't really pump this up very much, but I do have a group page on Facebook, Full Scale Outdoors group page, um, which could be a good place for some back-and-forth conversations if any of y'all are interested. Otherwise, like I said, just reach out, uh, send me a message, slide into my DMs, whatever, Snapchat, Instagram, doesn't matter. Um, Yeah, just let me know what you think. So we're going to get into this one. So um, first off, I want to give... Credit where credit is due. So again, this uh, is a Ducks Unlimited article by Gary Keller or Kohler, I'm probably butchering his name. And if you hear this, Gary, my apologies. And uh, hey, feel free to reach out, and uh, we can have a discussion on this very same subject. Kind of interesting. So, anyways, let's get through it. I'm gonna kind of, I'm not gonna read it like verbatim, like his intro and, and stuff like that. Um, we're going to get to the meat of it here. Uh, give me a second while I, da 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 da, da. I got to go through all this and stuff. Here we go. Number one, inadequate concealment. We've all heard it before, but being well hidden remains one of the waterfall hunter's most important considerations. Birds are quick to detect movement on the ground and not taking heed in mistakes is numero uno, be still, no gawking and cover up. So far, in agreement. Hiding properly is huge, this says. The main thing is you have to do something to make the birds focus on the decoys and not on your blinds. I couldn't agree more, which I think I'm going to interject here. And if you've been a long time listener to this show, you know that uh, both Nick and I are not fans of flagging for geese. And this would be primarily a reason why. You know, if somebody waves their hands at you, what do you do? you look where the movement is right now I could see here's where I have more gray area than Nick now if birds are like not coming they're you know on a crossing route or something way off in the distance I can see how maybe waving your arms waving a flag to get their attention might actually help but once they're coming at you I think especially once they start closing the difference in my opinion I think that's a detriment. And so, you know, you spend all this time brushing in your blind and trying to hide and everything else, and then you're doing everything in your power to tell them where you're at. Because not only are you flagging, you or somebody else is also calling. So not only is somebody just waving their arms, they're also waving their arms and yelling, hey, over here. So <laughs> kind of like you better be hidden because they are going to look exactly where that movement is. They're going to focus in exactly where that sound is coming on and it's not going to be your decoys it's going to be you in your blind so let us continue (laughs) most people don't realize that even a well camouflaged layout blind can easily be seen from the air they're not invisible instead put the blinds well outside the decoy spread if there's any contour to break in landscape to help blinds blend in take advantage of it even if you're in the middle of a huge field Again, also uh, agree with most of that. Um, You know, this goes back to Nick's, like, be the shoe kind of a thing. Like, depending on the field you're hunting, if there isn't um, some good natural cover, like, in best case scenario, there's, like, a little finger of ditch grass that comes out or just a swath of weeds or a taller than than average corn stubble, you know, depending on what what kind of field you're hunting in that you can – you know, use that to your advantage. It's going to break up your outline. It's a natural thing. Like this past fall, we were in North Dakota. There was a little, um, little patch of like this, um, tumbleweed type of weeds and tall grasses. And we put our blinds in there and talk about disappearing. I mean, it was, that was a gangster hide. That was awesome. Um, so stuff like that. And if you don't have that and you're not familiar with the Nick J's shoe theory. I'll explain that real quickly. So basically what he says is like, when you walk into a living room, it's, you know, you just have a, a blank carpet, right? It's flat. If there's a shoe on the carpet, that's, defi- that's not necessarily out of place. You know, you're going to walk in, you're like, oh, there's a shoe over there. Why is there a shoe over there? I know somebody didn't put it away. But it's nothing weird. Now, if you walked into your living room and somebody took that same shoe put it underneath the carpet and there's just like a big bump in your carpet where there wasn't a bump before you're gonna be like what why is there why is there a big bump in the carpet there where there isn't there's never a bump this is supposed to be flat so instead of trying to blend in this bump which is gonna stick out just be the shoe meaning you're gonna hide but you're gonna hide in plain sight if you will um so you're going to make yourself, you know, you do a grass hide, find some ditch grass, some of those, um, even if there isn't natural vegetation growing anywhere, you make that. You just make it look like there's a weed clump in the middle of the field because that is not abnormal to see in egg fields. So that's, that's basically the concept of being the shoe. Um, so yeah, so in you know, like I said, a perfect world, you get a little finger out there, maybe an irrigation pivot works really good, um, one year early season we had there was a big rock pile with um, like rusting cars and it. it was just like a junk pile we, we butted our blinds up to that that hid really well you're just another clump of shit in a big pile of shit and again they, you know driving around when you're scouting looking these fields there's often tr- trash and just stuff in the field so again that's the shoe that's that's not out of the ordinary um so either take advantage of one that's in the field or Or make one if it's not in the field, if you don't have any other kind of available cover. So that, I completely agree with that. Uh, He says, Keller, who has enjoyed success tracking huge flocks of snow geese to his decoy spread, this is seldom a simple task, believes that gunners diminish their chances of success by being careless about concealing themselves. That's true. Whether in layout blinds, pip lines, or permanent blinds, one has to blend into the environment. Not being hidden can ruin a great hunt. Any objects that are out of place in the field will be noticeable to the birds. See now that kind of flies in the face of what I was just saying as far as like being the shoe. Anything that's out of place. Like, um, if you can't I guess a good way to look at it is like if you can't exactly blend in to what you're, you know, trying to be then try to be something that isn't there and then then you have to be that grass clump but you have to make it look like a natural grass clump like if it's just a perfectly rectangular shape of eight blinds door to door (laughs) that's not entirely natural you know like you're gonna have to break that up a little bit and then also um I am definitely a fan of being out of the decoys. I don't really like to be in the decoys for that exact reason. You're using the decoys. The express purpose of your decoys, obviously, is to get the bird's attention. And by having them around you, again, you're focusing and you're calling to them. You're focusing or at least potentially focusing that attention on you you don't want that because somebody's going to be moving their face around, or they're you know even just calling. There's movement going on, or you're drawing more attention than you want to to this clump of grass that you just spent an hour trying to perfect. And again, you, like you can just be cognizant, be aware that anything you're doing to get those birds' attention is hopefully working. So therefore, the attention's being drawn to you. So if you have decoys out in front of you, side of you behind you. You know, and and some of this depends on um, the weather, right? So again, this last fall, snow goose hunting. When there's no wind, you know, when you're hunting a big, a big spread for like snows, you know, you kind of have to be in the middle of them because that's kind of where they're gonna try to get to. They're going, they focus in on the sound. they're You know, you have your decoys densely packed, stuff like that. That's where they're gonna focus in on. You just have to be wary, be calling at the right times. Um, Although this, I mean, you can't use e-callers in the fall, which, oh, my God, if you could, we probably would have even smashed more than we did. But um, I was the only one that had a call. So I was just, like, trying to be very aware of when I was calling and when I wasn't calling. Some days it worked. Some days it didn't. But um, point being, just try not to bring too much attention to yourself. Now, if it's a windy day and they have to, you know, they're going to be approaching from downwind probably a lot lower. Instead of dropping straight down, they're going to be coming at you then you want to be closer to the edge of your spread. And if I'm hunting honkers, and this could definitely be a win thing again, I generally don't like having decoys behind me. This is my personal preference. Definitely a point of contention with my hunting crew. I may be the odd man out here, but it irritates me when I have decoys behind me for that same reason that if I'm calling and the birds are coming in, they're even if... I'm being stealthy. If they're, if they by chance of, of, of the 40, 50 decoys or however many decoys we have out that day are looking at the ones behind me, if for whatever reason those are the ones that they are keying in on, well, at some point in time they're going to come straight over top of me. And if I'm calling, then they're going to look, there's just a better chance that they're going to see me. Whether if I have the decoys placed out in front of me and they're focused on those decoys, chances are they're not gonna see me there's a little this I almost wish this was a video there's a little experiment that you can try for yourself so you can take like sit at your sit at your kitchen table put a glass of water or whatever out and you know arm's length out in front of you well maybe not a full half arm length whatever because you're gonna need to reach behind it at some point but anyway so half half arm length in front of you put this glass of water So look at that glass of water and then take your hand and go in between the glass water and you and your sight and just wiggle your fingers. And then do the same thing while focusing on the glass and wiggle it behind it. You're more apt, you you catch the movement more when your fingers are behind or in front of the glass. When you put your hands behind the glass and you're focused on the glass, you don't see it as much. So that's just kind of how eyeballs work and pick up motion at least human eyeballs i guess i don't know how it works with geese um but that's that's just kind of a little quick experiment you can you can try on your own at least again what does it work or not in the field i don't know it seems to make sense to me and uh in my old age i get more and more irritated when (laughs) the things that bug me and that's just one of my pet peeves i hate having decoys behind me um you know the decoys Putting decoys out there for a reason to put birds in front of you to kill you. I don't, I'm not quite sure why you're putting them behind you, but again, with a big spread like with snow geese, you know a lot of times there's just nothing you can do about it. You gotta, they're gonna be behind you, on the side of you, way out, but they focus in on the sound. So, all right, let's continue. Let's continue uh if you can tuck behind an edge or a small indent in the field not almost saying like a natural finger that comes out you can minimize your shadow or be the shadow shadows are easily picked out from the air if you can eliminate your shadow you'll be more capable of hiding shadows are awesome you can use them to your advantage and again like you know depending on where the the sun's coming up and stuff like that but that um hide we had this fall with those big uh tumbleweeds cast this huge shadow and it was awesome i mean we i mean we just disappeared it was it was it's about the best hide you're ever gonna get um the counter to that with the good thing about snow goose hunting when you're dealing with hundreds of decoys, if not a thousand or more, is you can just forgo brushing in your blinds, especially if you're hiding in the middle of your spread and just laying in whites that it It's crazy if you're an if you're an old honker hunter and your first time snow goose hunting. It's going to take you a little bit to get used to because you're going to feel naked out there. And that happened with us this last fall. We had somebody that joined us that had never snow goose hunted. And he was not at all comfortable just laying in whites. But if you stay still and you're wearing a face mask and, you know, you can blend in, I mean, to all the other white that's in the field. So, you're kind of, you're Then It's almost like the zebra kind of camouflage thing. You're just, you're blending in to the crowd kind of a thing. So... Hunters should ask themselves how they are going to hide while scouting birds. Your goal is to become part of what is already there. If you're hunting with ground blinds, how do you become part of the ground? Don't become a beaver hut in the middle of the field. Become the ground with no more or less foliage than the surrounding area has on it. See, I disagree with that. That, that again, goes against the be the shoe thing. Um, If you make yourself... See, now I could see where that would make sense. Like, if you're trying to be the shoe underneath the carpet, like you're gathering corn stubble and you're just making this corn bump. And otherwise perfectly flat field That's going to look weird But if you make a grass hide In the middle of a otherwise Flat cornfield You're being the shoe That's not weird It's just a grass clump in the middle of a field That's, you know, whatever So agree and don't agree on some of those things Number two insufficient scouting failure to scout before the hunt is another common mistake made by waterfowl hunters finding a place to hunt often requires considerable homework and driving you want to be in an area the birds are using the hunters should pinpoint exactly where waterfowl are feeding scouting mistake number one is hunting off the x That happens when you do not put the birds to bed. Too many people stop scouting when they see birds in a field and they say they're there, we'll hunt that field tomorrow. Instead, stay and watch the birds leave and then find the exact spot where they're feeding last. Lock the location in handheld GPS and hunt on the X. Handheld GPS? How old is this article? (laughs) You won't wander around in the dark looking for the right spot. All right. Well, there's some truth to this and some not truth to this, I believe. Um, I do think you should sit there and watch them and put them to bed. As they say that that's pretty important. I'm not so much looking for exactly where they were in the field. That's part of it, but more of how they're approaching field, how they're leaving the field, where they're coming from, where the roosts are. Um, That kind of stuff can, can play a role in how you set up. Um, Especially depending if cover is then a factor as well. Like if there's not cover, like, could we bring them over here or bring them over there? The other thing is, and if you're not scouting the exact day before, so let's say, let's say you're hunting on a Saturday, a typical weekend setup, right? You hunt after work Thursday, or you scout after work Thursday, you find this feed. Well, if you're if you have the ability, don't just say, okay, we got this field, we got permission, we're gonna hunt here. Well, what I would do on Friday is go back to that place and just watch. Do they go to the same place? Are they hop? Are they changing feeds? Are they landing in a certain part of the field and walking into where they're feeding? You know, s- stuff like that is important information. As much information as you gather can be important. Um, and you might find that they don't go there. You might find that they went. They switch feeds. They went to another field. So now you might need to line up that field too. In which case, if there's no determined X, you might want to try to just get on a traffic field and get in between the multiple x's if you will these you know if they're jumping around fields close by we'll just try to cut them off and you can run traffic on those there's also a theory and I don't want to get too far off the subject but if you have the x you can you know secure permission on that the x is safe especially if it's a giant feed and instead of hunting it once and blowing it out go ahead and try to get permission on a traffic field in between the roost and the X field, which you have, you know, nobody else can, well, hopefully, if you have sole permission to do it, nobody else can muck it up. And then you can siphon birds off of that for multiple hunts, instead of just hunting it once and being done, you can run traffic on your own birds. So okay, anyways, let's get back. Um, pursuits and flooded timber, I don't have any experience in flooded timber but elsewhere i've taught him that watching ducks pays off hunter needs to remember that two ways hunters should give themselves away is face shining and body movement if you're not hidden well enough the ducks will tell you all you have to do is watch them i don't know why this is in a uh scouting part this has nothing to do with scouting but whatever in their pursuit of where snow goose keller and his crew have been known to cruise the countryside for birds both gas prices having gone through the roof the approach has been modified to help make the most of scouting time and minimize costs it's effective to find some higher ground in an area where birds are using. Uh, this is clearly like in the Dakotas. You, unless you're in western Minnesota, you're not going to get away with this. So depending on where in the country you're doing this, this actually is a pretty good strategy if you have the ability. You can get up on a high point. If you can see you know, a space where it's like you can see for miles, pretty good place to see where congregations of birds are are using. Um, it's going to be a little harder when you're in those parts that like central Minnesota has where it's like you got some ag fields and you also got big swaths of woods and stuff like that. You're not going to be able to see very far, but I'm going to skip a little bit here. We found that the best time to scout for ducks when hunting is good. So that is a little catch 22 right there. That is true. So if you finish hunting early one day, take the extra time and look for more spots. Very good, very good advice. Using your time wise, you can help you find great new places to hunt. Keeping a log book, which also I agree with, but don't do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is a uh, useful record information about these potential hunting areas like date, water depth, food source, present, and wind directions um, hunting for a particular spot. Again, that's another good reason to, if you have the ability, you got the field lined up, you know, treat them as like your pet birds. Go out and just watch them for a couple nights if you have the ability because if the wind directions are different, you can see how they approach. They're coming from the same roost. And they're feeding in the same field, but how do they approach that field depending on the wind direction? And then you can use that information to determine where you want to set up, where you put your decoys, and where you put your blinds and your hide, depending on the wind direction for the day you're actually going to hunt them. So, good stuff to think about. See, it's not just you just it's, you can't just go out there and throw decoys and hope for the best. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get a ton of luck. There's a there's a lot more that goes into it improper decoy placement number three this is a much contested debate among people once you find a field or wetland where the birds are using to obtain permission to hunt the site how you deploy your decoys can have a big impact on success bad decisions will cost you birds common mistakes are setting decoys in a distinctive pattern agree setting them all facing into the wind setting them at the same distance apart this is the old school goose hunting and times have changed Geese have long since wised up to the way our dads did it. It's time to get natural and random in most areas of the country. I couldn't agree more. This is, you start running a J-hook or a U or the donut, that shit drives me nuts. And he is adamant about one critical component. The number one all-time decoy mistakes in his experience is not spreading the decoys out far enough from each other. Why do you think they call it a spread? Provide adequate parking. Um, yeah, I guess I, I agree with that. I try to be, I try to be purposely random if if for a fun little oxymoron. because um, our brains, our human brains, are wired to pick out patterns, and we also set patterns. You know, you you think you're being random, and all of a sudden you step back and look, and you're like, ah, great, I made a grid. This is awesome. That looks completely unnatural. <laughs> so then you gotta go and move some decoys around. Um, but I always joke that I've never set a decoy right in my life. Because uh, if I'm hunting with a group, of, a group of people and I set a decoy, um, without question, somebody will have an issue with the way I'm setting out decoys. That's just, someone's going to change something. <laughs> Everybody has their own opinions. Um, when birds come to decoys and hover and dance in the air, circle and circle, you haven't provided adequate parking space, he adds. When your spread is right, birds don't circle as much and they do not hover looking for a spot to put their feet, they come right in and land. When in doubt, spread it out. I'm not entirely sure that's the case. I mean, I've seen um, birds, they just like trickle drop in. You know, they, they, they'll, if they want to get down, they're going to get down. And I would say if birds are hovering and looking uh, more so than a, looking for a parking space, I would say they're just not quite sure of what's going on down there. I'd say they're just being more wary about the whole setup in general than like, well, I really want to be down there, but there's nowhere to park. Listen, it's a huge field. They really want to get down there. They'll get down there. Um, yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure how much I believe in that. Uh, it says, good rule of thumb is to set decoys is about six feet apart. Large spreads are placed in large areas. Smaller, tighter spots require fewer decoys. <laughs> oh, shit. On calm days, it's almost impossible to finish ducks without decoy movement. Uh, I think he's talking, he's mixed in, Goose and duck hunting here. This is when a jerk string comes in handy. Sometimes multiple jerk strings are needed. Jerk strings do work really well. Keller and his accomplices have been known to set up 1,500 full-by decoys for snows and blues. and It is not feasible for everyone, however, and although big numbers are often preferred by goose hunters, the overall look may be just as important as the volume of decoys word of advice is to be natural and creative. Set up your spread like you see birds in the field. They usually have no set decoy pattern in mind when hunting. Birds will key in on areas where decoys are grouped and adjacent holes are close by. I often set several tightly packed groups of decoys throughout the spread to simulate heavy feeding and aggressive behavior. I agree with that. So this whole um, landing zone that we used to create, again, going back to what this guy said, like this is your old dad decoy spreads. Like every every... Waterfall, goose hunting, duck hunting article you read twenty years ago is all this like here's your pattern, here's your blinds, here's the wind direction, and then there's this you know, it's like the quintessential U shape or like I said, the donut shape. You get birds all around you and then this big empty thing. Well, they wanna land in an empty spot where there isn't geese. They got the whole field to do it. They're coming to the decoys for a reason. That's what's going on. If you watch live birds, most times they're gonna get they're gonna go where the action is and that's going to be where they're most densely packed not always you know early season when things are in family groups it seems like they don't want to be close to each other so they they will kind of you know set 15 yards off to the side of a, a group of decoys or whatever but pay attention to how the birds are working and then make adjustments as needed that's also pretty important None of these are hard and fast rules, and none of these things are going to work day in and day out every single time. It's not, this isn't chemistry. Like, you don't just get a recipe, follow the recipe, and you're going to kill geese. No, these are all, like, like general rules of thumb or, or good concepts, but pay attention to what the birds are doing, and they'll tell you what's messed up. If it's a decoy pattern thing, if, like, the birds are favoring one side or the other, you can change decoys around, like, if you have a really good hide um, to try to, you know, if they're, if they're sliding off the one side of it and nobody's getting shooting, well, then you got to move that edge so that when they slide, the birds are in front of you or where you want to shoot them. If you're doing the snow goose anything, especially if you were laying in whites and you can move really quickly, I think it's more beneficial if birds are favoring a certain part of your spread instead of changing your spread, which then you're not going to, if you change your spread, now you've changed the equation. You don't know how the birds are going to react. It's better to leave the spread as is and just move yourself. Put yourself in position to get shots on the way the majority of the birds are approaching. You're wearing whites, just pick up your chairs, move over there, take advantage of the situation as it happens. But if you watch the birds, they'll tell you what you they'll tell you what you should be doing or what you're doing wrong. Number four, unnatural calling. Count on your decoys to do their job, but more often the knot, you will have to pull your duck or goose call to get the bird's attention at certain times. Learning to call takes practice. There are also a learning curve in what calls to use and when to call in specific situations. So what are the most common calling mistakes waterfallers make? I used to say the biggest mistake was not calling at all. Today I have... I say calling without a clue is number one mistake. What I mean by that is today so many people are using calls with no concept of how they fit into the hunting scenario. They just try to call like the guy on the CD or try to give every bird a calling contest routine. When calls are overused, they become ineffective. Hunters should learn they're calling chops from the birds themselves, not from other callers, he continues. Other callers can teach you how to operate the call, but they can't give you the cause and effect knowledge the top callers need. That can only be learned through constant observation of birds. Pay close attention to what is happening. When you hear the birds make certain sounds, then then you'll have a clue and be more effective in the field. Smith, who also hunts in heavily pressured areas, pays close attention to what other hunters are doing around him, and he's noted a pattern of calling errors that often flare birds as opposed to enticing them. In our area, the geese have become extremely call-shy, but few of the hunters have. (laughs) My success is coming from calling very, very sparingly and at just the right time when the birds are ready and willing to listen. Often this window of opportunity comes after Flock has checked out the entire spread and the birds are in need of one small enticement to convince them to land. If they are coming all the way in without calling whatsoever, so much the better. Um, Keller also listens closely to his infield competition and has learned what techniques produce those sounds that do not unnatural cadence is the most common mistake I see callers make. It seems they sometimes try to do more on that call than what they, they are capable of doing point being hunters should stick to the basics and sound like real and natural. Uh, I'm going to skip some of this stuff. So yeah, with calling, you know, definitely know your limitations. If you're learning to call, and you can't make a bunch of different noises, but you have a good cluck, just stick to that, just stick to the cluck and, um, just do what you do. You start throwing errant sounds out there. You're just kind of messing it all up. And again, um, pay attention to the birds. They'll tell you if more calling or less calling if they're, you know, how, how are they responding to when you call and how you, how you call like, uh, how fast are you calling? How loud? Which notes? Again, I'll go back to this fall when we were snow goose hunting. There was one particular day where the call was definitely working, and it really sucked that I was the only one that <laughs> had a call because it took a lot of air. And, and while hunting, we had you know multiple chances, multiple birds were reacting to it, and I had found there literally was a particular note that they responded to, and they seemed to just want it loud and fast. So it was just one particular note. So it's just as much as I could. I just had to keep their interest and keep going as much as I could. And they would circle and circle and circle, circle and circle. And then sometimes they would come in. But if I let up on it, they would just lose interest and keep going. And it took a lot of air. And uh, we were hunting a traffic area, and the frequency of which birds were coming in. Dude, I was just calling all of the time, and uh, we. <laughs> they started to troll me because it was always like, oh, single on the right. And that was the other thing. It only really worked on like singles, doubles, and triples. If like a full flock, you know, 15 plus or whatever would come over and give us a look, the call didn't seem to matter at all. I think it just gets lost because then they start chattering. And one call down on the ground versus 30 birds yelling at each other, you know, a foot apart, they probably can't even hear me and, you know, whatever. But when it's just singles doubles triples like that and then they can actually start picking out because in that case a lot of times only one of them is calling you know so at least that's what makes sense in my head but yeah they'd be like single on the right I'm like oh my god here we go take a deep breath and then just like i'm literally my numb my lips got numb that day from just calling so much it was just ridiculous but keep that in mind and again uh he makes it a good point here too you don't always have to call like if they're coming, let them come, you know, and that goes for, you know, motion decoys or whatever. Like if, if they, if you're hunting and you see birds and they're coming your way without you doing anything, all you gotta do is not fuck it up. Just let them come. You know, if they start to slide off or lose interest, then hit them with some calls or something and see if you can't center them back up. But if they're already coming, let them come. Because I think we've all experienced that time where like, Oh, let's, run to the truck or let's run to town. The birds aren't moving. We'll come back. And then all of a sudden you get there and there's birds in your decoys. Well, there wasn't anybody there calling them. They dead silent. They went right in. And actually, if you watch live birds, a lot of times they don't make any sound until right at the point where the geese start landing with the other geese. And then they start yelling at each other as a, you know, territorial dispute. But when geese are 200 yards away, the birds on the ground aren't calling to them like, hey, come down here and eat. They're They're eating. They're not worried about They only worry about other geese when the geese gets close enough, and they're like, hey, buddy, not here. It's my food. So they get in that kind of territorial argument. Um, so don't always have to call. And some days it seems like calling definitely works against you. It almost they, let, they almost want that silent treatment. So another thing, keep that in mind. Again, I know I'm a broken record, but the birds, you just got to pay attention to what the birds are doing. They will tell you what they want, and they will tell you what they don't want. Miss number five, mistiming the shot, which brings us back to that one more swing dilemma that has plagued waterfall hunters for years. When does one call the shot? Whew, you want to talk about a point of contention with <laughs> with your hunting buddies? I know we've all had this argument. I usually use the first flock or two of the day to set the pace for the remaining hunt. If the first birds dump right in without hesitation, calling a going to be very easy. If the birds are wary or it's late in the season, calling a shot can become more difficult. When hunting, educated birds try to pay close attention to the lead birds in the flock. Usually the leading birds will be the most vocal and will also give you a pretty good indication of how they will finish just by watching them. Man considers others in his hunting party before making decisions on when to call the shot. The toughest job of waterfalling is calling the shot right. You have to call a shot for maximum effectiveness. Too many people wait for the shot to be good for themselves. And when this might lessen your success as a group, call a shot. So everyone in your group has a chance to contribute to your success. And that's the end of the article right there. Um, Also really good points. uh, When it comes to calling the shot, in my opinion, um, that whoever you determine, and, and this shouldn't be by committee, you should elect somebody in your hunting group that, when loser draw, that person calls the shot. And if you want it to be the most fair, I think you have to set it up where that person is in the middle. It just makes the most sense because there's something happens on the end. There's just a perspective. Like there is a few times. Um, where I've hunted where the guy, and like I'm on the far left, let's say the guy on the far right is calling the shot, and there'll be birds that I'm not shooting at, but they're like right in my wheelhouse, and he's not calling a shot, and I don't know why, and he's like, well, those birds were too far away. I'm like, uh, no, they weren't, they are were right there. And then same thing, when they'll call a shot when they're on their side, that looks super far away for me, and they call a the shot, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe you called that shot. They seem like they weren't that close, but to them, you know, even just four or five guys lengths away from you it changes the perspective of how you're viewing that that flock so again another reason to have your shot caller right in the middle he can be the most fair for both sides and with that said something again on that guy it's up to him to or her to watch those birds determine their body language check them out like are they going to make that one more pass and are they not i mean and everybody needs to just be okay with that person's decision. Like it's not worth getting into a piss and match over. Like, you know, you can talk about beforehand, like, Hey, what do we want? Do we want these birds right in front of us? Or are we fine with taking them tall and you know, whatever. And sometimes you're only going to get tall shots. That's the other thing. Again, listen to the birds. If they're just not doing it, when you get them in range, you got to take what you can get. Um, There's an adage in snow goose hunting that we like to repeat that says cut them tall or not at all. Because most times, especially in the spring, once you have them in range, in a range, you better take advantage of it because you're likely not going to get, it's not getting any better than that. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. Sometimes, depending on the day, they're decoying very well. And so, again, like that author said, if the first couple flocks really do it, well, now you can be a little bit more picky. There's another thing that comes into play when it comes to like snow goose hunting if you if a a spin is developing like you like the kind you watch on youtube you then as a group have to make your mind like and this is up to that shot caller again he can say you guys want to get try to get these and let this spin develop or should we take the first good opportunity we see because to get that spin to get that tornado where you watch on youtube where you shoot and like 20 birds fall because you're shooting the you know, you're, you're shooting at a bird, but then they're, they're so stacked and so tight that you're, you're getting overspray that's killing four, five, six birds each shot. And that only happens in a very particular scenario, and you have to let that scenario develop. So you're going to have to let some really obvious shots go past you, knowing that it's a risk, knowing that it might not work, that that might have been your shot, but you're letting it develop and everybody has to be okay with it if you're you know you want to get greedy we want to make this scenario happen the only way to do that is to let that develop so you gotta let it develop and just know that there's times it's all going to then fizzle apart and you're not going to get to shoot at all or you're going to end up shooting at you know a three pack that's way off on the right or something it's like oh shit they're out of here well be we better take these so Good communication between your shot caller and the hunters is very good. That's another reason to have somebody in the middle because I've seen it so many times where somebody in the far end is the caller. They call a shot. The people in the far left heard nothing. They're not ready, you know, and and that's something too. You can, if you're in the middle, you can talk to both sides. Um, just good communication is key. Just like, Hey, on we're going to, on this swing, on this pass, we're going to take it. All right. Let everybody know. So if you're hunting in a really big group, like 10 guys, um, do play telephone. Be like, hey, next pass. So the guy, you know, on right and left, lean to your right and left and be like, next pass, next pass, next pass, all the way down. And so everybody's on the same page. So, and then make sure you yell, you know, yell it. Take him, shoot him, kill him, take him to Jesus, whatever, you, whatever your saying is, you know, make sure it's loud so that everybody hears. And then also, don't be this guy. Don't be the guy that is calling the shot as he's already sitting up, shouldering his weapon. Do not be that guy. That guy's a douchebag. <laughs> or if you have that guy in your crew, don't elect him as the as the shot caller. <laughs> so we this past um, fall we had there there were some points of contention, and you're always going to have some of that. So. Here's the other thing. When you get into a little dust up, little argument, little disagreement with your buddies, let it be what it's going to be. Speak your mind. Don't ruin friendships over it. All right? It's not that important. Killing one or two more birds really not that important. You're kind of missing the whole point of why you're out there. I feel like too many hunters have too much FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, why don't you call it on that? You sh- you should have called it on that pass. Well, well, hey man, I made the decision that I thought was best at the time, it didn't work out, nobody's perfect, let's move on, we'll do better the next time, it's not worth fracturing a good relationship because of a couple birds, all right, keep that in mind, the other thing is that I would have put in this list as top five mistakes, I'll put as number one mistake, is stay in your blind, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you spend all this time finding the right place, setting your decoys out. And let's just say everybody's in agreement. Yeah, the decoys are perfect. This is a great field. Calling is awesome. This is all this stuff. But then somebody is constantly out of their blind and they are going to get busted. It happens every single time. Now, I get it. You got to pee. You got to pee. You got to pee. It is what it is. Get up, do your thing, whatever. But when there's just a lull in the action and you're up walking around, man, that irritates me. Layout blinds are pretty comfortable these days. Just tuck in and relax. Because if you want to talk about the FOMO, you want to talk about missed opportunities, it happens when somebody's sprinting back to their blinds or everybody's, you know, bullshitting. I'm like, oh, shit, right there. Because birds come in silent or whatever, and they're already locked up. And then, of course, then you move, and then birds are like, oh, shit, there's people right there. Now, if they would have just stayed still, even standing, chances are you probably had a pretty good chance to kill those birds, but as soon as you move, the gig is up. So, all right, that's what I got. Uh, what do you agree with? What don't you agree with? Go ahead and go on Facebook, find the full scale outdoors group page, uh, join it, start the conversation in there. Um, you can just message me on any platform, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever. And, uh, yeah, let's just, uh, Anything I said that made you go, you're a fucking idiot. That's not how you do it. Hey, tell me that too. <laughs> I know, I know. Even with my own buddies, they may or may not listen to this podcast, are disagreeing with me on on some of the things. I ha- I have devout flaggers in my hunting crew, and I am a devout not flagger. So, and I'm fine with it. It, it is what it is. Go out there, have fun. Don't let this stuff ruin relationships. It's you know. It's supposed to be a bonding time. Um, but, yeah, just don't take it too serious. Uh, try to shed any FOMO you might have. Um, just go out there and have fun. You know, a couple birds aren't that important. All right, we'll see you guys next week for another installment of Waterfall Wednesday. And hopefully Nick will join us. So, all right, that's all I got for you. Whatever your passion, pursue it full scale.